Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today John Butler. He is Emeritus Professor of Yale University, Research Professor of History, currently at the University of Minnesota. His books include Becoming America and A Wash in a Sea of Faith. He has served also as president of the Organization of American Historians. The book I have in my hand is called God in Gotham, The Miracle of Religion in Modern Manhattan, his latest study and our subject today. Welcome, Professor Butler. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. You begin with an interesting and moving little moment of spiritual ecstasy on the part of the artist, Joseph Stella, one that seems to take place in an unusual circumstance. What what was his, his moment of inspiration there? Where was he? Well, Joseph Stella was an immigrant Italian artist who came to New York in the late 1890s and to be a medical student, but in truth, he really wanted to do art. So he's worked for a while. He was discouraged. He went back to Europe. He ended up in Paris and he saw futurist art. And that inspired him in, in the city. And he came back to New York City and as he was there, first he was sort of depressed about being there because of all the modernization of the city, especially the skyscrapers, the bridges, and whatnot. And then he had a kind of epiphany, and he saw a kind of um, had a kind of transformation, and he called it spiritual, and he called it divine, and he painted very abstract part- pictures of things like the Brooklyn Bridge, and he saw God speaking in these abstractions. And it was, um, I used it as a way of introducing people to the possibility of the divine in modernity itself, which many people thought would be the end of religion. That religion was a kind of old-fashioned notion relevant to rural societies, agricultural societies, face-to-face societies, not to mass modern steel skyscrapers, etc. Where could you find God in that? And Stella said himself, and he said in his notes, um, which are in the Beinecke Library at Yale University, they weren't very widely circulated, but his paintings are very well known, and they're really early, they're modern, very modern portraits of the of Manhattan, and that's where he found God. And that's what I used as an introduction to the fact that we could find religiosity in this highly modern setting. Right. You mentioned how 
modernization and industrialization was not commonly looked at as a, as a place for inspiration. What did theologians at the time think when they looked at New York City circa 1903? Most religious leaders, most figures were deeply worried about the future of religion in Manhattan, and not only in Manhattan, but in all American urban places. Urbanization was new. You know, society had lived along as an agricultural enterprise for centuries and centuries, which is when, when you think of the medieval period, we don't think of modernity, but we think of a high degree of religiosity. Um, we don't think of that as in cities. And Charles Dickens, French novelists, um, everybody portrayed the city as a sea of sin, a sea of filth, a sea of indifference, a sea of death. That's how the city was viewed. And to, to find religiosity there was, would be difficult. There was a famous census that was done. It wasn't really a very good census, but that's another matter. Of In England in 1851, and the census revealed that most people weren't attending any kind of religious services, and especially in cities. So where was religion, if we may say, flourishing somewhat? Well, in the British agricultural areas. But as soon as you got 5,000 people, 10,000 people, much less 150,000 or 500,000 people in London, people were largely indifferent. And the Church of England um, was really in trouble, as were, in fact, all the Protestant main denominations. And the only people who were going, ironically, which is prescient in a way, were Irish immigrants who were latched onto the Catholic Church as part of an identity, and a, an immigrant identity. And that would be a pattern that's going to be common in New York City half a century later. Um, so the, 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 so the city was not a, was viewed as a spiritual cesspool, and um, Jews, immigrant Jews, worried that immigrating Jews weren't observing um, the, the, their their rituals. Um, immigrant Catholics were worried about the fact that they were now living in a place where the government didn't support religion in the way that European governments had always done, and and Protestants. Uh, the native, that is American Protestants, were worried about the arrival of Jews, but especially of Catholics, to say nothing of the rise of Mormonism, the American West, etc. So this was, this was, there was a lot of angst going on here. And the city was viewed as a place, very nervous, anxious place for religion. That's how major religious figures in virtually all areas um, viewed the city. And they didn't see it as a major new opportunity in the same way that they would see Africa as a major new opportunity or Asia as a major new opportunity. Whatnot. That's not the way they look at the American city. Later on in the book, you have a series of rich, vivid portraits of leading religious figures who come into Manhattan at a certain point, but, but sort of farther into the 20th century. Uh, how, did, how did the first religious leaders in the city, maybe in the late 19th century going forward, how did they manage to build congregations, to make religion 
a force in in Manhattan. Well, <laughs> you re- you 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 very nicely uh, take me to the second chapter of my of the book. The first chapter sets up the idea of the problem of the city. Second chapter deals with organization. Now, I have to say right away, let's let's be honest about this. Organizational history is not sexy. It's 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 kind of boring. Uh, people don't really like to hear about institutions. They really want to hear more vibrant tales. But the clue to this is that each one of the different, I, I deal with three main varieties of religion, Protestantism, Catholicism, and Judaism. And each of them set up, some by happenstance, some by design, uh, different modes of trying to grapple with the city. So um, the most forthright effort, really, it it probably is um, the Catholic effort, because it was the most um, hierarchical. There's no doubt about it that the church was hierarchical, and leadership came from the top, and the New York archbishops really worked to establish parishes, to get priests, to build structures. And they did that with some reasonable success. So as the population expanded, the church expanded. They built, they, their, their style was to build very large um, parishes with very large uh, sanctuaries, very large buildings. Protestants adopted a somewhat different model. That is, I suppose it's best to say they didn't really have a model because it depended upon which Protestant organization we're talking about. As Episcopalians didn't do things like the Methodists, and the Methodists didn't do things like the Baptists, and the Baptists didn't do things like the, like any of them. So some were some were high, reasonably hierarchical, Episcopalians, and to some extent Methodists. The Baptists weren't. But ironically, they all sort of ended up in the same place. That is, they built... They built congregations, they organized congregations, they sent ministers into the city. The denominations often supported the ministerial work, establishing congregations and then trying to find a way to finance um, the construction of church structures. And Jews had the most congregational system. That is, they never did, although we end up with three major Jewish traditions, I should say, Orthodox Judaism, what's called conservative Judaism. It's conservative only in relationship to the third, which is Reform Judaism, which is the form of Judaism that most closely tries to address modernity. And uh, or conservative Judaism is actually should be called liberal Judaism. And then there's Orthodox Judaism, liberal Judaism or conservative Judaism, and then reform Judaism. And none of the three ever exercised the kind of denominational authority over individual congregations that the Catholics did or most Protestant denominations, the most loosely organized Protestant group were, were Baptists. Um, which gave congregations a lot of flexibility, a lot of freedom. Um, But Jews generally didn't establish um, hierarchical systems. They really provided advice for uh, individual Jews in groups who would organize congregations. And the earliest congregations of Jews were largely very tiny groups meeting separately, oftentimes without, without a trained rabbi, but forming a minion of 10 men and meeting in apartments. And they were all over the place. So um, 
they they the second generation then organized the larger synagogues, which now you now see the visible remnants of or memories of or buildings in current in in 21st century Manhattan. Many of the buildings are still there. They were constructed between 1900 and 1920 or so. And um, the Catholics, or as I said, organized hierarchically. So we have a whole variety of approaches to organization. What's clear and what is important is that they all organized. That is, they were all found themselves in the business of religion. And if they weren't in the business of religion, then they wouldn't have any religion. That is, they had to know how to organize, and they did, but they didn't organize in any way in a systematic fashion so that they all did the same things. They all really um, observed their own, what they believed were their own traditions and organized uh, idiosyncratically, depending upon the nature of their tradition. And in your rendition of all these diversity of churches and temples and, and different groups, you don't really find a lot of conflict between them. Is that correct? That's my, that is my view, and I could be criticized for downplaying some of the, some of the conflict. There was conflict. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But what there wasn't was rampant conflict. In other words, um, there's a famous illustration in which a, which a man who was the chief rabbi of New York City died, and there was a funeral. And there was an incident in which Irish workers pelted Jews who were marching behind his, behind his coffin on the street. And um, the, the incidents like that could occur. But there were many, many more examples uh, of Jew, just take just take that Jews forming new congregations and marching with the Torah scroll down a New York City street, and nothing happened. No one much paid attention to that. Or Catholic children marching in parades, and nothing happened. And so, a good deal of the conflict is is somewhat exaggerated in our, in our literature. But I don't mean to say that there was none, because there was, and there was anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism in the workplace, in the press, uh, in variety of industries. There, there's no doubt about that. But with regard to worship, um, I'm gonna, I emphasize in this book that there actually was a, was a fair amount of, of live and let live. And so I used a photograph um, that was taken, admittedly, in the late, late 1930s, 1939, um, of a, it's called an elderly nun on the subway. And there's a nun, picture of a, of a nun, and with two young men sitting in the, she's sitting in one seat, and two young men sitting, no one's paying, they're all just sitting there. And they're just, you know, well, you could interpret that photograph in a number of ways, but I used it as, as to say to suggest that the level of religious diversity in New York City was simply was a given, uh, which didn't mean that there wasn't social discrimination or whatnot, but it was a lot of live and let live with regard to organized religion. What well, one important feature of building the religion is, as you put it in the, in chapter three, sacralizing the urban landscape. How did religious leaders put the sacred into 
in, into concrete form. <laughs> I'll take up your, your very words. They literally put it into concrete form, and they put it into concrete form all over the city. We don't really have a count of the number of religious structures in the city, but I would suggest to you is you can walk down any street, especially the, we call them the side streets, the small streets, not, not Fifth Avenue, Sixth Avenue, but you can walk down Fifth Avenue, whatnot, and you just come to one, one religious structure after the next. And most of them that, will, that survive in the 21st century, and most of the larger ones have survived, um, were built between the 1890s and the 1930s. Up to the up to the depression and somewhat a little past the depression. What's really almost more interesting? Those are the big ones, capped by really massive structures like St. Patrick's, like St. Patrick's Cathedral, or Central Synagogue, um, or Riverside Church was built later. Um, but the, what's really interesting is to walk down the side streets. And, and walk by one religious structure after the never. Some you have to sort of take a double take because they're all piled right next to each other. There's no, you can't see three, three dimensional. You can only, you can only see the front um, of the, of the structure. And they're one after another. So you can take any side street in Manhattan and you will find these kinds of religious structures. So that's that's the first thing is that they built them and the Catholics tended to build these very large buildings. Protestants and and uh, Protestants built modest sized buildings, most of them, although there are some large ones. And Jews initially had small structures, but then beginning in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, second generation Jews built larger structures that looked like much that 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 they weren't ever as large as major Catholic sanctuaries, but they were very large and very visible. So they're all over the place. So Manhattan, especially, is just socked, soaked with religious structures. They're all over the place. And then there's the other kinds of sacralization. There's um, uh, most of these groups took to, the, to radio as soon as radio emerged in the 1920s. Some tried to have their own station in the earliest years of, of radio. John Roach Stratton, who was a fundamentalist um, uh, preacher, uh, organized, a, uh, uh, funded a radio station, a 20-watt radio station in his, in, within his own church building. Um, and um, they loved the radio. Then their, New York became a, was a major publishing center. It had always been a major publishing center, especially for Methodists, for example, in the 19th century, where the American Bible Society was headquartered in New York City and still is headquarters in New York City. Uh, but most of these also greatly expanded. Journals were published in, in New York City, religious journals of all kinds. Jews had enormous numbers. 15, 20, 25, 30, 40, 50, 60 religious journal, religiously organ, oriented journals uh, by the 1910s. Then some of them would go out of business because they met competition and whatnot, and things would get centralized, but the, the, the publication became important. So New York was a very important publication center for religion as much as it was for major publishers. Then the major publishers also piled on uh, they discovered that religion was would sell, and they could sell a lot of religion books. So the major publishers 
also joined in. And here were New York City editors editing one religious book after the next, a prayer book, a book of, of homilies, a book of religious advice. So when, when Norman Vincent Peale begins to publish in the 1930s, he's just building on a tradition that's, all, that's been there for, for years and that multiplied in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s. So sacralization um, could be seen as something made, having to do with, with concrete buildings, but it also moved into the publishing industry and of virtually all areas of, of life. And so those groups, then new religious groups found, aha, what did they find? New religious groups that really did, had few followers, they found if they were white, they, they found in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, they found hotel rooms. They rented hotel rooms, one after the other, and they advertised in the New York Times and in the New York Herald Tribune and in a variety of New York City newspapers where they were meeting, usually on a, on a weekend, Saturday or Sunday. Um, uh, bl blacks who couldn't afford that met in storefront churches, and they inherited the tra tradition of Jews meeting in chevres, they're called, in apartment buildings in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s. So they're all over the place in big, big, big venues and tiny little venues. You, you know, as as blacks migrated north in the teens and 20s, uh, the religious institutions played a big role in giving them a place in this Jim Crow society at the time. You know, you quote the numbers on some of them. For instance, Abyssinian Baptist had 11,000 members of yeah. in his congregation. And that was just one of many. Actually, how did the church help help people beyond just providing a place to go worship? I think it's fair to say that the church was as much a social institution as it was a spiritual institution. That is, it provided a home for people who felt lonely and alienated in the city. It provided intellectual life. It provided a musical life. It provided a, a space for adolescents and young people. Sunday schools were critical to um, the maintenance and enlargement of every religious institution, Protestants, Catholics, and and Jews all emphasized Sunday schools because they realized that if, if, if they lost a child whose parents belonged to the congregation, well, then they would, that, that child might ne never come back to the religious tradition in which theoretically their parents were raising them. So Sunday schools were, were critical and they're, they're part of a person's identity. They become, they, be, they, be, 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 they become the place where they meet and talk to people that they know. And so most of the congregations provide, um, start beginning really in the middle of the 19th century in the infant direction, but certainly by the 1890s, and they would have clubs, a whole variety of clubs. Abyssinian Baptists, exemplified the pattern in black and white congregations. Abyssinian Baptists by the 1930s, after it had moved to Harlem, had at least 30 different kinds of organizations within the congregation, and probably more. Those are the ones that get named in variety of minutes or reports that appear in the black newspapers when, they, when all the churches, most of the Harlem churches would give a weekly report on their doings. 
And when that happened, they would name this club, that club, Missionary Society, the Literary Society, and the whole whole groups of them. What, what does that mean? It means that people draw an identity from from they're, they're not just lost among the 8,000 8, members. They belong to a club with 40 members, and they know most of the women or the men in those in those or in those organizations. And so the, the congregation therefore becomes a font for the multiple multiple organization of society and a font for the identity of the identity of, of individuals who belong to the congregation. What does the story, the case of the writer James Baldwin, tell us about this process? You, you spend several pages on him. Yes. So um, in 1951, James Baldwin, who will be famous later for excoriating religion, published his first novel called Go Tell It on the Mountain. And um, I would suggest to, I used to assign this for my, in my lecture course uh, at Yale on American religion. And um, the students read the first half of the novel before spring break and the second half of the novel after spring break. So that's when we discussed it. And they would almost always say, this is the best, this is the best book you've assigned for this course. Why? It's a very, very affecting novel. It's about the spiritual adventure, if we can call it that, of an adolescent child whose father wants to be a minister, but is really not capable because of his personality and his being. Uh, and um, it's about a it's about a um, storefront church, the Temple of the Fire Baptized, and um, Baldwin really offered in that novel criticisms of organized religion, but he also offered a very affecting portrait of congregational life within that kind of experience, and it reflected his own youth. He, he was, for a while, an adolescent minister. He later, later turned against the, against the man with whom, with whom he was working, but um, at the time, he had mixed feelings about it, but the novel is a very, very affecting portrait. By 1963, um, when he writes The Fire Next Time, he excoriates religion. He said religion has failed. Uh, it's been the handmaiden of white supremacy. It has, it, has, it has squandered its Christian heritage. And he goes so far as to say that, you know, if God can't do better than this, then we should get rid of God. So Baldwin re represents, on the one hand, a, a tradition within the black community in which religion is central to the nature of individual and community life. But he also represents the edge of modernity that, that rejects religion altogether. And part of this has to do in Baldwin's case with racial prejudice. There's no, there's no doubt about that. What Baldwin could, could, a, could, is there a white James Baldwin to write a s similar novel? I'm not sure, I don't know one, but I'm always willing to be instructed. But I think this comes out of Baldwin's black experience. Uh, definitely, and I use that as the introduction to a chapter in which I describe um, the making, re, re, remaking God in Jim Crow Harlem um, as a way of explaining how, on the one hand, religion organizes black life in the midst of still tremendous prejudice yeah. against blacks. Now, much about the last third of the book continues these profiles of significant figures. You have 
I want to mention you, you, you talk about Niebuhr, Paul Tillich, Jacques Maritain, Dorothy Day, Abraham Joshua Herschel, uh, Mordecai Kaplan, uh, Adam Clayton Powell, uh, Norman Vincent Peale, and we, we don't have time to, to go through more than one of them, uh, but I would recommend to readers these, these portraits of these individuals who probably couldn't do what they did if they hadn't been in a place like Manhattan. Let me just ask you, uh, finally, Professor Butler, what do you find most compelling about the career of Reinhold Niebuhr in New York City? <laughs> What's really most compelling, I think, is that Niebuhr was something of a force of nature. Um, he was the son of immigrant parents. He went to um, unaccredited colleges in Missouri. Um, he tried out uh, one of his teachers at one of those colleges said, you know, you really get need to get some credentials. And so he recommended that he go to the Yale Divinity School where he felt where he felt completely alienated because his English wasn't that good initially. Um, he wasn't he, he wasn't born with a Yale spoon in his mouth. And Yale was a place I assure you as someone who taught there, <laughs> Yale was a place where where pedigree counts probably still counts in the 21st century. So it's a different kind of pedigree, but it still counts. And the Yale Divinity School was um, really not his cup of tea. But what he discovered was that at Yale is that he was able to, by preaching as an interim student preacher in a uh, then minister-less congregation, he discovered that he had a real talent for preaching and well as well as for thinking about the dilemmas of religion in modern times. And I think what um, Niebuhr really encapsulated when he left Yale, um, he was offered a job at this congregation at which he was a temporary preacher while he was a student, but he, he, he um, uh, adhered to his own denominational tradition and, and uh, worked at a congregation in Detroit. And um, he built that congregation in less than three years from virtually nothing, 70 members to 700 members. And um, he also began writing, uh, wrote for major publications, and he caught the attention of the president of the Union Theological Seminary. Um, he published some early books, and he suddenly got a job. He got the job by one vote. <laughs> of the Union Theological Seminary faculty because they were disturbed that, first of all, he didn't have a PhD or he didn't have a doctorate of uh, doctor theology or a PhD. He didn't have either of them. Um, he just had a master's. I mean, he had the equivalent of a master's degree. And they, they thought, um, many of them thought that he really didn't measure up. Well, as soon as he came there, the first thing that happened was that he became the student's favorite lecturer. And then he wrote more and more, most famously, Moral Man and Immoral Society, which he argued that uh, authoritarianism was, a, was, was not beneficial to, to religion and to a good life. And he excoriated both communism and fascism. He became a figure who spoke to moral dilemmas and political dilemmas of the mid and early 20th century. And he made the argument that on the one hand, 
mankind has to understand that we are flawed, deeply flawed. But on the other hand, we have to keep struggling. We have to struggle through those flaws. We can't just give up. And we can't just also say, oh, life is going to be so much better if we just do this or we just do that. If we improve the nature of society, we're, we're going to overcome our foibles. Well, Lieber made the argument, basically, we're never going to overcome our foibles. And life is a constant struggle. It, it, that struggle never ends. And um, it's, something that, it's something that Niebuhr became exceedingly famous. He, his picture was on Time magazine. He became the American Protestant theologian. Uh, he never abandoned this sort of somewhat dour view of the nature of life itself whether it's modern or not modern, he said, we're all struggling with our demons. We're all struggling with the problem of we're imperfect. And some people phrase that as original sin. I don't, Niebuhr did use the phrase original sin, but he really emphasized we're just limited. We have a limited capacity and we have to live with that and we have to struggle against it. And that's why ethical teachings, they're always important. We need to keep that in mind. And he, very friendly with with uh, Abraham Heschel. He was very attracted to the Jewish figure Abraham Heschel. And Heschel ended up speaking the eulogy at Niebuhr's funeral. So there's a nice ecumenical dimension to Niebuhr, despite the conservative nature of Niebuhr's own theology. The book is God in Gotham, The Miracle of Religion in Modern Manhattan. Professor John Butler, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. This was great fun. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.